Hello and welcome to the podcast for the Center for Advanced Governmental Studies at Johns Hopkins University. We are a center for research and teaching focusing on government, and we are home to master's degree and certificate programs covering domestic and international politics and policymaking. My name is Colin Paschal, and I'm a faculty member at the center. In our podcast, we aim to provide the latest news and updates from the center, highlight the work of our faculty and students, and feature the insights of experts associated with Johns Hopkins and our friends in Washington, D.C. and across the country. In this episode, we share an interview that I conducted with Dr. Daniel Larson at the University of Cambridge on his upcoming book, Plotting for Peace, American Peacemakers, British Codebreakers, and Britain at War, 1914-1917. to The book will be released in the U.S. on May 20th from Cambridge University Press. My name is Colin Paschal, and I'm a lecturer in the Center for Advanced Governmental Studies at Johns Hopkins University. And I'm here today with Dan Larson uh, to discuss his uh, new book, uh, Plotting for Peace, 1914 to 1917. Did I get that title right, Dan? Uh, Plotting for Peace uh, is the title, and then the subtitle is American Peacemakers, British Codebreakers, and Britain at War, 1914 to 1917. Okay, great. Thank you, Dan. Good to have that correct. Um, and Dan, could you just tell me, introduce yourself briefly, who you're affiliated with and, and what you do? Yeah, um, I'm Dan Larson. I've got a fixed term uh, college lectureship in history at Trinity College, Cambridge. Um, and I'm a historian of, of the, the early 20th century, looking at Britain and the United States. So I was, I was very pleased to talk to Dan, um, and I have a, a little bit of history with Dan. Dan and I were on the same dormitory floor when we were in college back in the mid-aughts. And so it's, I've kept in touch over the years and have been excited to see that this book finally come to fruition after what I know was a very long process. So um, Dan, maybe you could just start by giving us a sort of a 10,000 foot overview of what you're trying to achieve in this project and um, what, what the research is. Yeah, so, so uh, the, the project started off as an intelligence one, looking at British breaking of American codes, um, you know, despite the, the sort of special relationship that develops after uh, 1945, um, uh, after the Second World War. Um, the British had, had no qualms about breaking American codes and reading all the American diplomatic telegrams uh, that were going back and forth, uh, which they were doing from 1915 onwards. Um, but the more that I looked at this, the more that I realized I had a, I had a much bigger story to tell. Um, one about uh, basically British acceptance of the American position on the world stage um, uh, after, you know, as it stood in the early 20th century. Um, because uh, the, the British um, were, were fighting this war uh, against, uh, against Germany. Um, and, and one thing they were trying to do was to use the United States as their, as their base of supplies. Um, and they were trying to bring in huge amounts of goods from the US, about as much as France was spending on its entire war uh, effort. Um, and <clears throat> uh, there were some in the British government who realized that these, these supplies, which were being paid for by liquidation of assets, because the Americans wouldn't lend them any money, um, were... Um, uh, were, were a, a limited resource uh, that, that, uh, that once these supplies 
or once these assets were used up, these supplies were gone. Um, and this led this faction uh, within the British government to be receptive to the idea of having the Americans come in and negotiate a compromise um, that to, to try to end the war in, in 1916 um, with Woodrow Wilson at the head of the peace table. Uh, attempting to broker a compromise peace. Um, but this faction within the British government was opposed by a second faction um, that believed that, the, that, that basically uh, there, would, there would be another British century ahead of Great Britain. Um, and they refused to accept that Britain had any of these kinds of limits vis-a-vis -vis the United States. They rejected any, any kind of talk of peace out of hand because they, they couldn't see why it would be necessary. Um, and so it's about this conflict between these two sides um, and, and, and American diplomacy as it fits into it. Okay, so let's back up just a second here. So, mm -hmm. you know, for, for those of us who are, are not as deeply engaged in diplomatic history uh, around World War I or, or even sort of the state of world affairs um, during this time, maybe we could kind of go piece by piece here and you could kind of describe who the actors are. So let's start with the, the UK side of things. Who are the sort of the critical actors that you focus in on within the UK government um, during this time period? Like what is, what is the dynamic going on within the government at the time throughout this period? Mm. So um, uh, the British government, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a tense coalition government between the liberals and the conservatives uh, until December, 1916, um, you know, from early 1915 to December, 1916. Uh, and then um, you get a, a, a government that's dominated by the conservatives, um, but, but headed by a liberal, David Lloyd George, after uh, 19, uh, December 1916. So that's kind of the basic uh, political setup. Um, but uh, but my, I'm really interested in particular in the Asquith period. So, so Lloyd George's predecessor, H.H. Asquith, who's the prime minister, um, and he's got a couple of key allies, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Reginald McKenna, the Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Gray. Um, and the three of them are, are uh, you know, in addition to other people, but the three of them in particular are really concerned about um, this kind of economic problem vis-a-vis -vis the United States um, and, and are really, um, you know, come to the point of, of being receptive to, to uh American peace diplomacy, um, and uh, uh, and then and then on the other side of, of the debate is is Lloyd George and and a lot of the conservatives um, who tend to refuse to accept that this is that this is a real problem, um, and it and it's these personalities who are fighting it out in in the British cabinet and in the British War Committee. Um, so what is it that they are fighting about in some sense? Is it the ability to continue to finance the war through the United States? Is it the ability to continue the war? Like what is the, what is the essence of the conflict there? Hmm. Well, so, so it's, it's actually like a series of little conflicts or a series of conflicts that other people have seen as being about discrete issues. So things like conscription and British strategy um, <clears throat> and finance and munitions. Um, that, that all of these is being, have been seen as kind of problems of British politics, um, people disagreeing about what Britain should do. Um, and, and what I'm uh, showing is that, is that actually all of these things are the same fight playing out over and over again. Um, but um, basically, you know, Britain's uh, reliance on the United States and its willingness to accept 
um, the reach of American power. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, this fight over conscription uh, where, where it's often portrayed as, as, a, as a kind of namby-pamby liberals um, being worried about uh, the, the rights of the individual. Um, no, it's actually the resistance isn't about um, liberal values. The resistance is about um, what this is going to do uh, to their economic position vis-a-vis the United States. Um, so this is in some sense uh, uh, a story of, of intelligence research that turned into international relations research that turned into economic international relations research. The story seems to have so many, uh, you know, it's this mm-hmm. onion with so many layers to it. Um, how did you sort of manage the scope of this project or how did you think about investigating this as you got deeper into it? It seems like you just kind of let yourself follow the evidence or was there some other logic to the way you thought about this? Um, yeah, just basically following the evidence. Because the original idea way back when um, was to look at how British intelligence broke American codes and helped manipulate the United, helped British government, helped the British government to manipulate the United States into the war. Um, and, and then the story I found was that when, when I looked at how this intelligence got used, um, it was actually being used in an internal conflict. Um, that actually, and actually, I, I, one of the conclusions of, of the book is that the British probably would have been better off if they hadn't been breaking American codes. Um, because it just, it just fed into this internal conflict uh, because it, uh, because, you know, British, Britain's having, you know, extensive relations with the United States. Um, and, and what it does is it gives other actors within the government a window into what the foreign office is doing, um, and a way to see exactly, um, what it is, you know, what the, the specific contours are of British foreign policy. So what, um, are, and what the Americans are doing? So what um, what are they learning from these from these code from these diplomatic cables that they're reading? Like what what is it that the U.S. is is trying to do that they would not have otherwise known if they didn't have access to the, to this information? Um, well, so 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 um, I mean the 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 a lot of these negotiations are extremely secret. Um, they don't want them getting out beyond a very narrow circle. These are negotiations uh, for this potential peace conference? Yeah, or, for okay. a potential peace conference. So, so uh, the president's, U.S. president's chief advisor, um, a man by the name of Colonel House, um, he, he has the, the colonel is just an honorific um, that was given him to him by a Texas governor for helping him win an election. Um, so he's not an actual military man, um, but he, he comes over as the president's representative and, um, and has lots of discussions uh, with, with people in, in, in Britain. Um, and the foreign, the foreign secretary is telling him things that other people in the government uh, don't want him to tell him. Um, and so because- Okay, of, I'm because sorry, I'm gonna back up. So the, the, the cable mm-hmm. includes information from different factions within the British cabinet. And so they're learning about mm-hmm. each other's policy stances through the American cables they're intercepting. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because um, because the, the the Colonel House is, you know, saying what the foreign secretary is telling him, you know, reporting back to the president. Um, and other people are getting to see what the foreign secretary is telling him and are not happy about it. Um, oh. 
So how do they conf- how does how does that conflict play out within the British cabinet? I mean, are they are they barging into you know rooms in Whitehall and smashing their fist on the desk and saying you lied to me or you're telling the Americans you know all these secrets or or, or do they even tell each other that they're learning about what he's saying? What what is the information exchange like within the cabinet? Um, well, uh, so 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 um, it's being shared very discreetly. Um, so, so, so other, we know some other people found out about these things, um, uh, but it, one of the problems about intelligence history is that it, it, it's often really hard to trace exactly what happens. Um, like, you know, that people know, um, and, and, and sometimes you can trace them doing things as a consequence of, the, of them knowing, um, but, but pinning those down can often be really difficult. Um, but, but like another instance later in 1916. Um, so in addition to kind of this element of giving a window into what uh, uh, other people in the British government are doing, um, there's also this, this episode where um, the, the British, British intelligence intercepts an American cable uh, from the American uh, embassy in Germany to uh, Washington. Um, Okay, so, I'm following. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so they get this cable from the American ambassador in Germany, um, and it's it, it's communicating a German peace offer, basically, um, and uh, they sort of so, selectively decide um, to give this not to the foreign secretary, um, who you know would have seen it for exactly what it was, which was an American ambassador communicating a German offer. Um, and not the, where, whereas um, instead of giving it to the foreign secretary, they give it to the, the war secretary, Lloyd George. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lloyd George rushes out um, and gives an anti-American interview to, uh, to a newspaper, basically telling the American president to butt off, thinking that he's just discovered and headed off the German-American conspiracy. Um, when in reality, um, the, the Americans weren't going to do anything as a result of this. Um, uh, German offer uh, and had no intention of doing it. And the British actually had intelligence saying that, um, which doesn't seem to have been distributed. So, so, so the, the, it shows how intelligence can be this um, sort of weapon or, or the source of power um, uh, within the government. Because um, some of the key people who control this intelligence are, are military people um, who are pretty pretty extensively and openly opposed to what the foreign secretary is thinking about. Um, so maybe, could you make that more concrete? So what what are the what are these military people disagreeing mm-hmm. with the foreign secretary about? What is the nature of that that conflict there? Um, so so uh, well so one of them, Reginald Hall, he's the, the director of naval intelligence. Um, and he's he's one of the people who's who's getting to read all of the things that Colonel House is sending back about what he's doing with, with Sir Edward Gray. Um, and I found a, a great letter from, from Reginald Hall, um, you know, basically saying that, that he knows what Colonel, or he thinks he knows what Colonel House is up to, um, and he's definitely not going to get it. Um, mm-hmm. that, 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 uh, and he tries to inject himself a little bit into uh, uh, British diplomacy. He meets with Colonel House at a couple of dinner parties, and he um, it's, a, it's a great quote. I endeavored to convince Colonel House that we are out to beat the Germans, not by words and treaties, but by horrible deeds of blood. I think <laughs> is, is uh, it's, a, it's a pretty 
pretty near quote. Um, of course, Colonel House takes no notice of this. Um, so, <clears throat> um, but but it but it is clear that that um, that because of the way that the people who have this intelligence control this intelligence um, and and who they decide to show it to at which points uh, is is a pretty important factor in um, contributing to to some of these internal uh, squabblings um, and and actually damaging. Britain's relations with the United States, as we saw, um, you know, as you see in that example of, of someone rushing out to give an, a, a pretty offensive interview. <laughs> uh, so, so, so the, the conclusion of, of the book is, is quite, uh, the conclusion of the book is rather dramatic, I found. I mean, you, you, you seem to describe in, in in no uncertain terms, or maybe I'm, I'm misreading this, but you seem to describe conclusively that that the relationships that you're describing here and the, the economic factors and the intelligence factors were really in some sense pivotal to the outcome of World War One. And I wonder if you could talk about sort of what are the stakes, what were the stakes of these interactions and what were sort of the, the major geopolitical consequences of them, if that question makes sense. Yeah, because part of the argument is that, um, because history has been has been very unkind to to Asquith in particular, um, and one of the arguments of the book is that um, uh, you know the reason that America gets pushed into the war in in early 1917 is because the Germans launched this unrestricted submarine warfare campaign uh, to try to cut off British supplies from the United States. Um, but uh, but these assets that were sustaining all of these supplies were um, on the verge of exhaustion. I mean, the British were burning through them at an extraordinary rate. They're all—they're basically gone uh, by six weeks, with uh, you know, give or take a bit. But sort of, uh, you know, within weeks of American entry into the war, these assets are gone, um, and they would have the, the resulting economic and financial crisis would have put a stop to to all of these supplies. Um, and so, part of the argument is that is that. You know these breaks, uh, this kind of resistance to conscription, um, uh, this resistance to, to high spending in the United States, um, is that the breaks that that Asquith and his his um, faction put on the British war effort during 1915 and 1916 um, help uh, sustain this financial campaign long enough for Germany to make this extremely foolish decision. Um, and bring the United States into the war. And then as soon as the United States is into the war, you know, these supplies are no longer a problem because the, mm -hmm. the, US, the US government is just cutting the check um, and financing all of it through American debt um, and a bit of taxes. But uh, um, so, so it was really a kind of closely run thing. Um, and, and if the financial crisis had happened before uh, the, the submarine warfare campaign had been launched, the Germans wouldn't have launched the campaign, um, and the United States would probably never have come into the war. So, um, so, so that's kind of what's at stake. Uh, uh, and so, so it's really, it's really an interesting setup. It seems to me. So you have the Asquith government that is sort of limping along, not fully exhausting all of its uh, resources. Mm -hmm. uh, Germany, in the meantime, at some point, decides, I guess somewhat foolishly to initiate unrestricted submarine warfare, which draws the US in. 
But then right around that time, if I understand the timeline correctly, the uh, the Asquith government is is defeated in a general election. Okay, and, not a general and, election. Oh, a pardon of, me. Kind of, uh, yeah, a sort of palace coup. Okay. Of the, of the kind of British kind. Okay, so the Asquith the Asquith government gives way. Let's put it that way mm. to to Lloyd George's government, and then Lloyd George is able to uh, prosecute the war with unlimited American supplies, more or less. And, and comes out of the war sort of a hero when really it was the caution of Asquith that facilitated the entire thing. And mm. in, the back, in the back of all of this parliament of the, uh, intrigue in the cabinet is these different factions of the, of the British government reading this intelligence and trying to sort of gently manage this relationship with the United States. Is, have I captured this correctly? Yeah, no, that's 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 a that's a pretty good description of what's going on. Because yeah, Lloyd George takes over December of 1960, um, and you have this kind of um, what is it four month period uh, where um, the British government, you know, apart from the new Chancellor of the Exchequer, who was who was previously with Lloyd George, and then suddenly has this job that um, makes him realize that that he's not. Um, but uh, but but you have this period where the British government um, uh, is basically in complete denial that it has a, that, it, that 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 there's a kind of war-ending financial crisis um, happening uh, on their on their doorstep. Um, they do nothing to try to head it off. Um, there's basically zero plan uh, for for anything happening other than the United States coming into war at exactly the right moment, um, which they don't even think needs to happen. Um, mm. And uh, like, like it was sort of um, uh, kind of twin policy. I, I call it a twin policy of dependence and delusion. Um, I have to say that it seems to me, you know, I'm not a historian of World War I. I'm, I'm not a historian at all. I'm, I'm an American political scientist. But it, there does seem to be a sort of symmetry to World War I to me. Like, it seems like it were, it's often described as the world just kind of stumbled into World War I by default, this automatic... Uh, you know, dominoes of alliances, and it just kind of happened. And it's still debated to this day, to some extent, how did this happen? And now at the end of World War One, it seems like we just kind of stumbled, it just, the nations just kind of stumbled their way out of it by this combination of happenstance and personalities. And, and there was no grand, there was no one behind the scenes pulling the puppet strings. Am I, uh, I don't know, do you take issue with that characterization on my part? Um, I mean, I, I can I can see how um, a kind of uh, IR political scientist uh, <laughs> might might uh, um, arrive at that because uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, you you have this kind of extremely complex crisis that happens in July of 1914, and this extremely complex peacemaking process um, that happens in 1919, and um, uh, and, and that's usually kind of the, the way that the story is told in terms of, um, you know, uh, that, 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 uh, that there was going to be, you know, as soon as the conflict started, it was going to end um, with one side being defeated and the other side winning. And it was only a question of which side was which. Mm -hmm. and, and part of the book is, is, is questioning whether that was completely true um, and mm -hmm. wondering... Um, you know, whether there was a way to kind of close the gap between the belligerents in the middle, um, which maybe there wasn't. Uh, I mean, part of the, 
the conclusion is that, that peace was possible. Um, that, 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 you know, to say peace was possible is not to say it was necessarily probable. Hmm. Um, but it does, it, it, it emphasizes the way in which these are powers under human control. Um, and, that, and that this wasn't sort of impersonal forces swirling about um, dictating how these things happen. Oh, I, I'm feeling some shade here from a historian versus the political scientist and the way we, we perceive the world. We can, we can save a, a broader disciplinary uh, uh, standoff for another time, I suppose, but I, <laughs> I, I appreciate the subtext of what you're saying. Um, well, a, a truly a fascinating project. I wonder if we might sort of close on, on a different topic and, or, or a sort of a, a different approach to thinking about it. And, and perhaps a, as a historian, you're loath to do this, but I'm wondering for someone who is reading this book today, you know, what lessons do you think about human behavior or, or international relations or, or, or conflict and war? What lessons ought we take away from this that might have application to thinking about current problems that we have or the way the world works works now. Mm, yeah. I mean I think I think there's 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 sort of a few themes that run through it. Um, I get one is the kind of ascendancy of the United States on the world stage. Um, and how uh, still important the United States is as as sort of the world's um, top power. Um, you know it's a bit more contested than it was a few decades ago, but um, but but the importance of the United States is, as a as a you know, an American foreign policy, I think, is is something that runs through, and we we see the beginnings of that um, in in my book. Uh, uh, another question is is you know Britain's stage on on uh, position on the world stage um, that that Britain was once world economic top dog. Um, and a, and a, a big theme of British history is how Britain deal, has, has tried to deal with the fact that it, that it isn't anymore um, and its relative decline over the past um, sort of century and a half. And, um, and you still sort of see these kinds of debates about, um, you know, if, if, uh, if only Britain is bold, it's bound to succeed. Um, and uh, and it's, it's a, a conviction that has been sort of seem to work out in, in British history. Um, but, but here's a, a kind of case for caution that, that, um, that, that people with this attitude had it um, and it, it, led, it almost led Britain to disaster. Mm. Um, and then I suppose, I suppose a kind of um, final thing is, is just the importance of intelligence and, and um, how that feeds into diplomatic and foreign policy decision-making. Um, that that uh, that it's kind of a it's a really hidden aspect that we don't really get to see about, um, except in historical terms. Um, but I think it's important to know that that's happening behind the scenes, um, and that there's 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 a lot of information that's being generated in this kind of international game of of international politics mm -hmm. um, about all the other players, and, and remembering that that's there, even if. Um, we can't see it uh, except through archives decades later. Well, and in this particular instance, information about your own country that, you're, mm -hmm. that you may be learning that you were not familiar with, which I think is maybe not the way I would typically think about a book about intelligence when in some sense it was, you know, members of the UK government learning about themselves, mm -hmm. uh, which yeah. is sort of a, an interesting twist on it, I, I found. And it probably still yeah. happens today. I mean, they're with especially I think about the US, there's 
all these different competing intelligence agencies and they all are uh, protective and jealous of the information they all have. And, um, and it's an interesting, mm. and another interesting layer to it, I think. Yeah, yeah, the, the political use of intelligence domestically. Yeah. The way, the way that it can be a political weapon um, within a bureaucracy. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, well, great, cool, Dan. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you a little bit about this. Maybe you could could tell us the title of the book again, so we can look it up on Amazon or or your favorite outlet in the near future. Um, the the title of the book is "Plotting for Peace: American Peacemakers, British Codebreakers, and Britain at War, 1914 to uh, It was it released in? in the UK and Europe in uh, on April the first, um, and it's due for a US, uh, a North American release um, sometime probably in May. Uh, the, the publishers haven't quite decided, but but uh, uh, we'll be there um, uh, before long, so. Good, early enough for your summer beach reading to be sure if uh, that's what you're inclined for this summer on when you're on vacation, so. Um, well, great. Well, thanks, Dan, I appreciate talking with you. Always good to chat and I hope to talk to you about these sorts of issues again in the future. I look forward to it. All right, thanks. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Center for Advanced Governmental Studies at Johns Hopkins University. To learn more about our center, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter or Facebook.